what a season we're in. Just looking back, what a momentous week. I've just been amazed this week to see how fast history can turn on a sixpence. It's just, it's been extraordinary. I've just been a bit glued to my BBC News app in the last, um, last few days, just seeing just the, the seismic shift in British politics and in European politics and the, the responses from around the world. It's just been phenomenal. And the question that sort of raises for me is, where, where do you put your trust? We, we've sung this morning, you stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes. There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. God never changes. He, there is no shifting shadow in our God. He is faithful all the time. The world may change, but God doesn't. And I think that's a wonderful thing. So yeah, a momentous time. But looking ahead as well, locally, this is a momentous time. With the Christian festival next Saturday. It's, it's going to be amazing. Are you nervous? Yes. I am a bit. If I'm honest, this is unknown territory for us. And we're going to be very public about the way we preach the gospel. I'm, trying, I'm still trying to, in my mind, get my head around standing on Vero Island with Jonathan Conray, giving the altar calls, giving words of knowledge, asking people to respond to words for healing, a ministry team down there in the park, and then people coming up on stage to say, this is what God's done for me, and then asking for another wave of it, and saying, this is what God is like. Come, everybody who is thirsty. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, some, that's some seriously, spiritually aggressive action right there. And um, where's your trust? Is your trust level sufficient to cope with the demand for the miraculous that's going to be there next Saturday? What, what we need to do as a church next Saturday is completely beyond our natural ability. Yeah. And I think we've all got to settle that in our hearts. We can't pull off next Saturday on our own. There will be people coming with all kinds of unresolved questions and all kinds of needs that we can't meet with our own resources. Unless God shows up and meets those needs, we will have, we'll be like snake oil salesmen. We'll be like these kind of people that are peddling a false gospel, saying that God is good and he loves you. And yet, without power to save. We really need God to be there. We need to be able to partner with the Holy Spirit in the moment to be able to release the kingdom into people's lives. Not everybody will get healed because there's all sorts of reasons why that happens. But a lot of people will. Not everyone will be able to understand that God loves them because there'll be blocks in their life. But a lot of people will. And I believe that God's got many people in this town that he's got his hand on that will be touched by the power of God next Saturday. 
So I would encourage you to, we're getting a bit low on the flyers, I've got another 300 printed this week, but some of them have gone out in book bags in primary schools, so we're now down to a small handful again. So if you, if you need a flyer, take one, but put it into the hand of the person you want to invite. And don't put it into anybody's hand unless you've prayed about it first. Because you don't want this just to be a bit of paper, you want this to be a seed of the kingdom sown. You want this to be something which is spiritually charged. So that even if everything happens to them on that day and everything suggests that they're not going to be able to come, that the Holy Spirit just takes control of their circumstances and sort of frog marches them down to their island. That's what we're praying for. So take, take a flyer or two. But this morning, I, I want to begin to prepare our hearts for the impossible. This story in Exodus just happens to be the next part of our Exodus series. And it landed on today, and I could have just kind of thrown it out and just given a message about preparing for next week. But there's so much in here that's just amazing stuff tailored for us to prepare our hearts to go where we've never been before and to trust God for what we've never trusted Him for before. And so, I was just as I was reading through, I was like, this is... I just felt the Lord just bubbling on my heart. And so we're going to stick to this passage, and thanks Pam for reading it. This story is so uncomfortable. As Pam was reading, could you just feel the stress levels and the tension amongst the people? It's, it's a real panic situation. And it's easy for us to sit here in our comfortable church, with our comfortable homes and our comfortable fridges full of food, and our taps that water comes out of them, to, to listen to this story and judge the Israelites for being faithless. It's a bit like watching reality TV, seeing something where people go out into the wilderness. I don't know, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Or, or Bear Grylls stuff. The island, whatever. And you see sometimes tensions running high. And you see people getting all stressed out and having a flap about their situation. Really easy to sit there and go, oh, I'd be so much better at dealing with that situation when we're sat on our couches with a glass of wine in hand. Isn't that? You don't know until you've got there. You don't know what, how you're going to react until you're in that moment, until you're faced with those very same circumstances. And we read this with, with the benefit of hindsight. Knowing that God did provide, that water came out of rocks, that bitter water became sweet when Moses threw a stick in, that quail just came out of nowhere and landed and they could just pick them up and eat them, that, that, that manna appeared like frost in the morning, they could pick it up and it tasted like wafers with honey. We, we know that, but they weren't in that position when they first got out there. And they were out there in the middle of nowhere, in a desert, with their children and their animals, with no water to be seen, no food to eat, run out of resources, and they had to process that. That messes with your head. It messes with your head enough if it's just you, but when you've got little ones, and you've got the elderly with you, and you've got nursing mothers, and you've got pregnant women, and we know that there were a lot of them in that community, and you've got animals to feed, and you're in the middle of a waterless desert, that puts a serious amount of stress on your life. You've got no reindeers with you. You've got no bear grills. You've got Moses. He's a pretty good desert shepherd. 
but the stress levels are high. They face the real prospect of death. Do you ever get a bit grumpy and irrational when you're hungry? Yes. There's a few honest people in the room. I, I think my kids know when I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm slightly less kind. I think, especially speaking for the men in the room, I think there is a there is definite link between hunger and rationality. These guys were hungry and they were angry too, and their the tensions were running high. It's interesting to see how fast God was willing to take people out of their comfort zones into this really difficult situation. They've kind of just put down their tambourines from coming out of the Red Sea. They've just got free. They've just got away from the pursuing Egyptians. And they've just become a free people. And the people of God, they've, they've taken on this new identity of this, this tribe that is now moving towards the Promised Land. They are the people of God. And literally, like, it goes from the Song of Miriam, thanking God for deliverance, straight away into a, like a boot camp of faith. God has no qualms whatsoever about taking us to a place where we are going to have to learn to trust Him. Yeah. And sometimes we, we expect that once we become Christians, that life will be easier that our needs will be met in God in that way. And that it, he will do it in such a way that it's painless and is on tap. God does want to meet our needs. This proves that God wants to meet our needs. God does want to come through for us. God does want to meet every need that we have in a way that is intimately related to him and that we know comes from his hand. But he doesn't always do it when we want it. Sometimes he waits to the 11th hour, doesn't he? He doesn't mind letting us sweat a little bit, putting us under a bit of pressure. That's just the story of salvation. That's par for the course. And it's right here written in this foundational story about what salvation and the life of faith is all about. It's amazing. I sometimes think about the way that Jesus trains us. You think about the disciples. The disciples had a similar experience, really. They were invited to follow Jesus. And what followed was three years of being confused and being way out of their comfort zones, of not really knowing what was going on or where they were going, and having to just learn to trust God in the moment. Jesus, ever the teacher, has this passion to teach them to trust God for themselves. And so what does he do? He sets them up in all kinds of ways, in positions where they either trust God or they're going to sink. They're going to be in trouble. So he says to them, you, you get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. I'm going to stay over here and watch. Storm comes. They're set up. That is a setup. 
Jesus sees them struggling and straining against the oars, waits for a while until it's nearly dawn, so they've been going at this all night. Then he walks out to them on the water. And he gives them an opportunity to believe. And so Peter, love Peter, he's the only one that sees Jesus and says, if it's really you, let me come to you on the water. And he steps out of the boat, walks on the water. Then he sinks. Then Jesus says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I say it's but a fair bit of faith to get out of the boat in the first place. Um, but Jesus fully expected him to walk on the water all the way to Jesus and for the two of them to walk back towards the boat or to walk into the shore or whatever. That was what he was hoping to see Peter do. That's a big expectation, isn't it? But don't forget, these same disciples have just seen 5,000 people fed with five loaves and two fish. And yet, in that moment, in the very next moment, they're stressed out and struggling and wondering where this God is that's supposed to be helping them. Coming back to the 5,000, that was another setup. 5,000 hungry men and women and children. I reckon five hungry men is a hostile situation. <laughs> so 5,000 needing to be fed, what does Jesus do? He says, you feed them. He gives them the problem, which is an impossible problem. And so they have a flap about it and they empty their pockets and they say, do you really want us to go and buy food for all these people? And they're in kind of self-sufficiency mode. And then Jesus amazes them by doing a, a miracle of multiplication and using heaven's resources to meet the need. Matthew chapters 14, 15, and 16 are so interesting. So in chapter 14, there's the 5,000 fed. In chapter 15, there's the 4,000 fed. And in chapter 16, they're in a boat and they've forgotten the bread. And Jesus says to them, completely different, uh, different context, he's saying, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they start arguing amongst themselves in the boat, saying, he's really cross because we forgot the bread. <laughs> and when Jesus gets wind of it, he's amazed. He says, why are you quibbling about having no bread? He says to them, when we fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish, how many basketfuls did you pick up afterwards? Twelve baskets. And when we fed the 4,000 with seven loaves and two fish, how many basketfuls did you pick up afterwards? Why are you talking about not having enough bread? And this teacher is exasperated because they just haven't got it. He's like doing miracle after miracle. He is proving himself to be the supernatural provider. He's proving themselves to be faithful in the moment. That he can produce, he can provide for them. That the Father can feed them and he knows how to feed them. And yet they have this default setting that they want to be able to provide for themselves. It's hard to get human beings to trust in God rather than in their own efforts. Jesus spent three years trying to get this message home. That God knows your needs, he cares for you and he can provide even if it's a bit last minute. When he sent the 72 
out on their first missionary journey. What was his instructions? Take nothing with you. Don't take any extra money. Don't take any extra coat. Don't even take a staff to lean on. And when you get to a village, just stay at the first home. Whoever is, is a person of peace to you, whoever welcomes you into their home, stay with them and eat whatever they give you. Don't move from house to house if you get a better offer. Just, just stay there and bless that home. Stay peace to this house. Why? Because God wants them to learn that he is faithful in the moment. If they take with them money and food and provisions, if they send someone ahead to arrange a place at the inn for them to stay, if they put out, I don't know, flyers in the next village saying this amazing thing is coming, you know, be prepared. It means that they are trusting in their own efforts. Instead, God is, the strategy in that moment was go to the place. Trust me. Trust me that I will feed you. Trust me that I will house you. Trust me that you, you will find somebody who is a person of peace that will welcome you into the community. Trust me that there's going to be people there that are going to be hungry that will be able to receive your message. Trust me. And when you get there, say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now repent and believe the gospel. It's not much to go out with, is it? But there was something about the disciples learning to trust God over their day-to-day, everyday needs that prepared them for what they were about to face, for ministering the kingdom in the supernatural with healing and with preaching. They had to learn to trust God as a lifestyle. It's actually very difficult to be faced with a supernatural problem where you've got to pray for someone in faith that they're going to receive something from God if you've been out of practice of trusting God in your own life. It really is. I wonder if, if there's been times in your life where you have been out of your comfort zone and had to trust in God on a sort of hand-to-mouth, moment-by-moment basis. Can you think of a time in your life where if God didn't come through for you, you really were in trouble? It may well be a time where you felt your faith was so vibrant and you could take on all sorts of challenges because your faith levels were high. You'd learn to trust God in the moment. The only way we can grow in our trust relationship is to step into situations that we can't control and provide for. Moments when we need God and we absolutely must have God come through, otherwise we're in trouble. Jesus wanted to train his disciples to fix their eyes on the Father and what was on God's heart in that moment. See, they've been looking at him. They've been trying to watch him. They've been trying to imitate him for, for the three years. And Jesus, all the while, his eyes were on the Father and on, on what the Holy Spirit wanted to do in the moment. And so for three years, Jesus is ministering the kingdom. He's releasing the resources of heaven. He's sharing the heart of the Father with people. And for three years, 
the disciples are straining to catch up and trying to work out how to do it. Jesus is constantly trying to teach them to keep their eyes on the heart of the Father and to learn what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so he has to put them in these positions where they have to find God for themselves. And he gets so excited when they get it. Like when Peter says, you were the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, he, he rejoices and he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And he's so excited. And he gets a promotion. And you shall be called Peter the Rock, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a glory moment. It, it's like the, the, the master teacher has finally got something through to one of his students. They're doing it. Peter is drawing for himself revelation from God, and he's being able to proclaim it. Finally, they're getting it, and in the very next moment, Peter rebukes Jesus because he says, you'll never go to the cross. I'll never let that happen to you. That's never going to happen. And Jesus says, he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me because your mind is not set on heaven's agenda. It's set on the things of man. You've dropped back to your default setting, your self-preservation setting. One minute, he's an excited teacher. The next minute, he's an exasperated teacher because he wants them to get it. They have to learn the hard way. They have to learn by being in positions where Jesus is not there to bail them out. And that's why Jesus says, it's better that I go because then the helper will come and you will start to learn to work with the Holy Spirit. Then you will have to keep your eyes on the heart of the Father. You will trust in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and you'll learn to walk as I walk. Your focus will be in the right place. You won't just be trying to copy what I do and hope that it works the next time, like a formula. Does that make sense? The Christian life is a life where we are called to draw from the heart of the Father ourselves and then to discern what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the moment. There is no formulas. Jesus is always innovating. We can know his heart, we can know what the sort of things he loves to do, and we can act upon that. But in the moment, we have to know, what would you have me do in this moment? So back to Exodus. I want to pull out some points from this story. Point number one. Will you get on their case, or will you get on your face? I like that. What do you do when you're stressed and under pressure? What do you do when you're feeling afraid and angry? Do you grumble? And do you uh, look for somebody to blame? Do you, do you look for the authority figure that has led you to this place and put you in this position and do you, do you start grumbling? Or do you get on your face before God and start searching for a solution and a way forward? Read verse 24, Exodus 15, verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. 
two ways to deal with the same situation. Everybody needs water. Everybody's feeling the pressure to provide water. I can tell you, nobody felt that pressure more than Moses because he felt incredibly responsible for this flock of people that he had with him in the wilderness. It's tremendous pressure on Moses. Everybody's in the same situation. Two ways of dealing with it. One, grumble and tear down the leader. Another way is to get on your face before God and say, God, show us how we deal with this situation and what can I do? What's heaven's agenda here? What, what can I do to help and to provide for what these people need? And God showed him a simple thing by picking up a stick and throwing it in the water and it was enough. It was a supernatural provision. How many people are in the grumbling club in this story? The vast multitude. How many people are in the heaven's solutions club? Two. Moses and Aaron. That's it. Is that not typical when stress gets high? Have you noticed this in the workplace or in your families? When stuff goes wrong and tensions are high and nobody can really resolve the situation and things turn bad, how easy is it just to complain about it and then point to the person you feel is most to blame? It's really easy. It's easy to tear people down. And it's really easy just to voice the negative, voice the, the, the problem of the situation and go no further. It's hard to get on your face before God and say, God, I don't want to be part of the problem. Show me some way that I can be a positive voice in this situation. Show me some way that I can build this situation back up. Lord, give me a creative solution. Give me a suggestion that I can throw in at the next meeting that might just lead us forward to, to a better future for whatever the situation is. When I see that family member next, let, let me not get dragged into a bitching session, but instead let me work out a way to rebuild the identity of our family. It's harder to do that, because often we ourselves feel the same kind of pressure and the same kind of need and the same kind of offence, or whatever it is. There are very few people who are willing to get on their face before God and say, God, you have a plan here. You know a way out here. You, you've seen what we can't see. Lord, show me how to partner with you and your plan in this situation. It's a rare thing. Don't just take it out on the authority figure. Chances are they're feeling it even stronger than you are. The pressure to get it right. Will you get on their case? Or will you get on your face? Number two, the second thing I want to pull out of this is trust is measured in present terms. Trust is measured in present terms. Let's read verse 4 of chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. God's faithfulness has to be known in a hand-to-mouth kind of way. They were to gather food daily. 
and resist the urge to hoard more than they needed just in case God didn't come through in the next day. And they also had to trust God enough that it was going to be there to get up in the morning to go out to gather because when the sun got hot, it was going to disappear. So they had to have a daily rhythm of trusting in God, going out to gather, gathering a day's portion, trusting that God was going to be there the next day to provide. And if they gathered too much, there was just worms in it, it stank and it became foul. Maybe that was one way that God exposed people. You knew who was gathering too much because they had a stinky tent. So only gather what you're supposed to gather. And also to gather twice as much and then not get up on the Sabbath to see if it's there. Because Jesus said, I mean, the Lord said to Moses, on the sixth day, gather, gather twice as much, because on the Sunday, well, it'll be the Saturday, but on the Sabbath day, there's going to be no man on the floor. You can all have a lion. So some people must have got up that day, gone out, and felt a bit stupid, because they're looking at of course, God said. Trust is cultivated on a daily basis. It's in the moment. Yesterday's trust is not enough for today. You have to walk in a daily lifestyle of trusting in God. Yet God did say, I want you to take some and put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony that I fed you in these days. So there is a, moment, a kind of memento, a monument, a, a, a symbol of God's provision that they were to carry with them. Why didn't that go stinky and sour and have worms in it because God ordained that it wasn't going to have that. It stayed as a jar of manna. I love that. I, I will say whether the manna is preserved or not. But they had that in the ark as, as a sign. It wasn't as a sign that God can provide in the past. It was a sign that God provided on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. That's what the sign was supposed to mean, that we are a people who have learned to live hand-to-mouth with the faithfulness of God. I don't know if you have any mementos in your life, any symbols knocking around that remind you of a time when God came through for you. My study is full of them. I've got all sorts of bits and pieces in my study at home, which create a degree of clutter Sorry, Mary. <laughs> She's always saying, just sort your study out. Because I do get in a bit of a mess. But it's full of these funny little tokens and all sorts of things, like rocks and, yeah. and uh, little pictures, and I've got like batons in there, and I've got this. I've shown this before when I was talking about staying sharp. But this is... Uh, a moulding plane from my great-grandfather. It's a beautiful thing. It's even got Tom Gascoigne stamped on the back. He was a cabinet maker. And uh, that has tremendous significance for me. And I, I didn't share the full significance of it the last time I brought it in, um, but it, it, it is incredibly significant because it reminds me of my years when I was in business as a cabinet maker. And the kind of cabinet making that I used to do was always really difficult. I, I, for some reason, I decided that my niche, my market was going to be the complicated stuff. The things that nobody else wanted to build. Um, I thought, you know, I'll be able to charge well and I'll be able to, to do well if I um, 
if I do the things that are kind of out of the box. And so I, I ended up designing a lot of kitchens in collaboration uh, with different clients and also taking on random projects on boats and uh, I did stuff here and I did stuff in London, I did stuff everywhere and I had some really, really interesting clients. And often I would commit to a project I had no idea how to carry out. I didn't tell them that. I was like, yeah, sure, we'll make that. And then I'd get back to the workshop and think, how am I going to build that? I have no idea how to do it. And I remember that I, had, I could talk to you about tons of projects where I just, I had to just innovate and I had to just trust God that he was going to show me how to do it. I remember one time I was designing this kitchen with this uh, lovely couple. They, they were up in the mountain in Totnes. Uh, really, really lovely couple called Simon and Greg. Some people might know them. Their kids went to the Grove. And uh, I, I, I sat down with Simon and we designed this kitchen. He brought all sorts of pictures that he'd seen in different places that he wanted. And uh, I was, we, we just kind of made it up as we went along. And partly what he decided he wanted to do was these curved doors, kitchen doors, out of uh, American black walnut and curly maple. Really beautiful things. They were handleless. And uh, these doors were a certain radius, and then they had to have a block on the front that went round, that had a handle going all the way round underneath. And there was four of these doors in this kitchen, and I was like, yeah, sure, we can do that. And when I got back, I thought, this is laminating all these layers of wood, and it's got to stay stable. This thing can't start moving and changing its radius or dropping or anything like this. This is an expensive kitchen. I've got to get it stable and I've got to get it these lines that go perfectly all around the kitchen and around the curb. And if there's any misalignment, it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. And I've got to build this now. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> and I worked out, I, I did it, I've got to calculate it, and I worked out that the pressure needed to create these doors was over half a ton per square inch to laminate them. And I was like, Lord. Signed up to. I could just get back to him and say, I can't make them. I thought I could. No, nah, I can't. But I didn't. I just prayed and said, God, you're going to have to show me how to make these. And a thought dropped into my mind. I'm going to go and see my friend, four doors down, who was a boat builder. Great guy. He was a great friend. We were good sort of allies in, in construction. Because I had machines that he didn't have and he had stuff that I didn't have. And I just said, Look, I'm really sorry. I've signed up to this, this project. Um, which I can't afford not to do. I really need it. Um, and I've got to produce these doors and I don't know how to do it. You got any ideas? And he was amazing. He gave me two days of his time and he taught me all about vacuum forming. This is boring for most of you, I know, but it doesn't matter. It was interesting for me. He taught me, he taught, he taught me about vacuum forming and how to do it. And he came with his own vacuum bags and this amazing compressor and we built a former together and he walked me through it. And I, by the end of one week I had these perfect doors that were finished and oiled and ready to go and they were just perfect. It would have taken me weeks I think to work it out on my own but in that moment God sent a provision of a man called Ian Bowles who's a lovely guy and if you need your boat fixed go and see Ian. There you go, I'm giving you something back. But um, yeah, he was God's man for the moment. Actually, I ended up being able to exert over a ton of pressure per square inch. <laughs> oh yeah, those doors are not going to move. <laughs> Masterpiece. 
But we have to learn to trust God with the present moment. And the way that God teaches us, the way that we learn, the way that we grow, the way that we become more competent, the way that we become the people that God's created us to be with the abilities that God's given for us to use is not by shirking the impossible. It's by saying yes to what God wants to do and then saying, God, show me how we're going to do it. Show me how we're going to do it. Because we can trust God for what he asks us to do. I've got so many times in that time in my life, both over financial provision and over uh, strategy as, as to how to make things, that I keep that on my shelf. Because that says, doesn't matter how impossible it looks, God can show you the way to do it. God can give you the strategy. God can provide the person. God can give you a design that's going to work. And it's true for all of us. Final thing. God is good despite our lack of trust. God is good despite our lack of trust. Verse 12, chapter 16, verse 12 says this, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Now speak to them, saying, you're not having any bread or any water until you stop grumbling. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Now speak to them, saying, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. How gracious is that? What have they just said? They've just said some incredibly offensive things to God. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt when we had pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, but you brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. After all God's just done for them, after the mighty works over Egypt, over taking them through the Red Sea, after all of that, within days they're saying, oh, if only you'd have killed us in Egypt. Imagine your God listening to that. You'd just be tearing your hair out. I don't know if God's got hair, but you'd be tearing it out. If he did. God is good, despite our lack of faith and our, our unfaithfulness. You know? God is faithful to his goodness and to the prayers of the few. Moses and Aaron sought him and they came out with a solution. He's faithful, faithful to his character, his goodness, and to the prayers of the few. The multitude might have turned away from God, but he still blessed them. He still blessed them because of who he is. During a visit to New York Mills in 1826, evangelist Charles Finney visited a cotton manufacturing plant where his brother-in-law was superintendent. As Finney passed through a spacious room in which many women were working at looms and spinning jennies, he noticed several young women watching him, seemingly jeering and laughing amongst themselves. He was a bit of a strange-looking character, I have to say. As Finney approached them, they became more agitated and even a little hostile. When Finney was about ten feet away, one woman sank to the ground and burst into tears. Soon others were sobbing, overcome with conviction for their sin. 
This outpouring of the Spirit spread rapidly through the building until the entire factory was singularly aware of God's presence. The owner, an unbeliever, realised God was at work and temporarily closed the plant. He asked Finney to preach to his employees and to tell them how they might find peace in their souls. God is good, despite widespread, widespread lack of trust, even open rebellion. He loves to show up and to bless, sometimes because of our faith, and sometimes despite our lack of faith. It's who he is. What we're going to be doing next Saturday doesn't necessarily depend on our faith levels. God is wanting to show up because God wants to show up. God wants to bless even though people are rebellious and have turned their backs on him. It's here in this story and it's been known throughout history. He's that good and we can trust him to be that good. But we want to align ourselves with the few who pray for change and stand with God and seek his solutions. And don't just grumble about the situation, but instead we get on our faces and we say, God, have your way. Have your way. Show us how we can respond to you in the moment and partner with you as you release your kingdom. When you find yourself out of your comfort zone and everything seems to be hard or impossible, I want to ask you, Will you find someone to blame and get on their case? Or will you fan into flame your faith and get on your face? Which are you going to do? Will you learn to trust God in the present and not just appreciate God's dealings in the past? Will you get to know the God who loves to show up whether we feel full of faith or not? I think we need to get to know God better that way this week.